You're listening to the Jesus Culture Sacramento Church Podcast. All right, you guys ready to go? Yeah, good, me too. Why don't you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. I want to um, start with a few things that probably most of you are are aware or familiar familiar with. But just to give a context, Jesus is eternally God, but he emptied himself in the sense that he chose to live as a human being, a man submitted to God. And while he never stopped being God, he chose to function as a man in right relationship with the Father. This is so critical that we get this because everything he did, he did in a way that could be followed. If he did all of his miracles as God, I'm still impressed, but I'm reduced to an observer. I stand back and I cheer for what God has done. But when I find that he has multiplied the food, raised the dead, walked on the water, healed the sick, as a man that was in right relationship with the Father, then suddenly I'm no longer content to stay where I am. Jesus announced to us of himself, he said, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself. I've looked it up in the original language and nothing actually means nothing. He couldn't do anything in and of himself. He had, he had completely emptied himself. The Spirit of God came upon him, revealed to him what the Father was doing, and that's how he modeled the life and the ministry that he had. We tend to learn principles from Jesus and try to duplicate the principles instead of embracing the process. The process that he modeled for us is that he only did what he saw the Father do. He only said what he heard the Father say. Instead, once we finally got the courage to pray for the sick and cast out devils and do all the things that Jesus did, we tend to run into another snag because we are prone to formulas. We're prone to taking one, two, three steps to get somebody healed or delivered, whatever it might be. And I don't care if you take a hundred steps as long as people get free. But Jesus modeled something for us for a reason. He said, I only do what I see my father do. The Bible says that when Jesus was baptized in water, when he came up out of the water, in Mark chapter 1, it says, the heavens parted. And the word there for parted is a very violent term. It is not wispy clouds separating in the sky. It's actually a violent act. Because that word is used in Matthew 27 to describe the splitting of rocks around Jerusalem at Christ's death. It describes, it's the same word used to describe the tearing of the veil in the temple from top to bottom. In essence, the scripture is saying the heavens were torn open so the Spirit of God could come upon Jesus and rest upon him and remain. Literally, the coming of the Spirit of God upon Jesus, that baptism, if you will, was in answer to Isaiah's prayer, rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah 64 verse 2, probably most, most of you have prayed that prayer before, as I have. Rend the heavens and come down. 
I believe it's a biblical prayer because we want the heavens to be torn over cities, torn over nations. But the reality is the heavens are open over you. And if you personalize the, what you discern in the neighborhood or the workplace or the environments around you, whenever we personalize it, we actually, we actually give place to oppression over our own lives. When you believe a lie, you empower the liar. When I believe a lie that I live under closed heavens, then I actually empower darkness to oppress and to rob and to steal hope from me. One of the things that you and I have to fight for the most is the awareness of the Spirit of God resting upon our lives. Cultivating an appetite, appetite for an awareness of the Holy Spirit himself. It says of Jesus that the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove and remained in, in John's Gospel, chapter two. Came upon him in the form of a dove and remained. The point is, is that he could have come and gone. But Jesus was such a resting place for the Spirit of God that he came upon him and remained in that condition. Learning to host this person of the Holy Spirit, not a power, not a source, not a presence, but a person of the Holy Spirit himself to rest upon us is the absolute key to ongoing development of relationship, uh, the, the maturing of our own lives and breakthrough as we love and we care for people. Learning how to walk in purity and power are the two, the two kind of duplicate, it's the two legs we stand on. And they need to be the same length. Purity and power, it's not one over the other. It's not, you know, if you're, you walk in great purity but there's no power, you're just a nice person that everybody around you goes to hell. If you walk in power and there's no purity, there's no character, then you're very entertaining, but you don't provide an example to follow. And the Lord is calling us to walk in equal measure of purity and power. To think that this gospel can be displayed without power. To think that the love of God can be adequately displayed without power is absolutely ridiculous. The power of God is absolutely necessary to demonstrate, to manifest this perfect love of God. And it's flowing in your life and in my life. And I tell our folks often, I say, the Holy Spirit is in us as a river, not a lake. He's not just hanging out. He's flowing in and through us. He's wanting to alter the geography around us. So my favorite thing is, is just the, the bold declaration of the gospel. I was transformed by uh, the preaching of a, a, dear, a man who is now a dear friend of mine, Mario Murillo. His bold preaching of the gospel changed my life. I said yes. And it changed everything. And I'm a strong believer in that bold confession of faith. I'm a strong believer in the proclaiming of the gospel with power. But I've been recognizing that it is easy for me to reduce the gospel to my understanding of what boldness looks like. When in fact Jesus ministered in so many different ways to people. And I want to give you two unusual illustrations today. Two stories. And I want to show you how Jesus ministered to people. The goal is always to bring people to repentance, but people don't always come to repentance the way we think they should. So you're in Luke chapter 5, I hope, and I want us to start with verse 1. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. We've got several verses to read, so just kind of hang in there. 
<clears throat> so it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake Genesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. Their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. They came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will catch fish. I want to start with the end of the story and just kind of work my way back. First of all, I want you to see something here. Jesus implants a picture in their mind of the last day's harvest of souls. It is not a token catch of a few fish. It is enough to sink two boats. It was an abundance of harvest, and he gave them this illustration to permanently brand in their thinking what his intention of a last day's harvest looks like. He was not giving them a token uh, responsibility. He was not giving them a promise to go out, labor hard, gather a few folks until we're finally rescued. He was actually announcing to them visually, this is what I think of when I see last day's harvest of souls. People come in in such great numbers that we don't have containers to contain them adequately. In other words, they're not going to just be cared for by our systems. Revival itself is the best discipler. I believe in one-on-one, -on -one, but I'm telling you, a move of God disciples people. And so here Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's illustrating something to them that is very profound. And I do believe that, that the most important part of this lesson is the harvest of souls. It wasn't just the fish that were caught in the boat. But there's something in this story that I do want you to see. Whenever Jesus gives a natural illustration of a spiritual truth, that natural illustration has to be real. It has to work there. It has to be true there, or it doesn't qualify to illustrate something in the spiritual. For example, you would never say, um, the joy of the Lord is like getting high on drugs, because it's not true. It's not, it's not a legitimate example. You can only use something that would be legitimate in his value system. It has to be true in the natural for it to prophesy into the spiritual. Are you guys alive and be alive? So it has to be real in the natural for it to prophesy into the spiritual. And in this particular story, Jesus comes to Peter, who is a fisherman. He's a businessman. And what does he do for the businessman? He causes them to prosper. He gives him more fish than he can handle. He actually has to share with other partners. It was such an extreme catch, such an extreme harvest, that before it prophesied of the harvest of souls, it spoke to him about God's care for him 
as a businessman. This is a profound story to me because Peter drops to his knees and begins to confess his sins and Jesus didn't preach. He didn't preach, he didn't preach. He didn't, he didn't tell him, he, he didn't tell him, you know, you got these issues that you need to deal with. He just didn't do it. I mean, he, he did it in various places throughout the scripture. I have no problem with it. There are times where, you, where you, you boldly come in and you declare what a person needs to hear. But the only way you know what to do is to become aware of the person because the Holy Spirit always knows the way that we are to approach every individual. And this one size fits all thing really costs us terribly because one size doesn't fit all. Every person deserves a unique and different response. Even in healing, Jesus healed each person that's recorded in scripture differently than the previous. Every time he changed. And it wasn't because he liked varieties, because he's following the Father. It's what the Holy Spirit showed him. And so here's Peter, he drops to his knees and he begins to confess. He says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. I love this story for so many reasons, but one is power forces a decision. Power forced Peter into a decision. Listen, if I'm just a nice guy, everybody around me likes me. But once power has showed up, people have to decide for or against. And sometimes a church would rather have the applause and the favor of people instead of drawing the line in the sand saying, today is a day of decision. And I don't mean that arrogantly, I don't mean that in a way to repel people. I just mean, listen, power forces a decision. People who, who maybe were just fine with, you know, those social work that you do in the community and your kindness as you come in to do business and all those things that I think are so important for us as we testify of God's goodness by, by our love and our care for the people in our community. There's also the willingness to step over the line and say, I heard you have cancer. Can I pray? I was in the gym the other days and uh, working out and a guy, a guy became very angry at me for reasons I won't go into. Uh, he just asked, he asked me a question. I gave him an honest answer and he was just ticked, just ticked. And so over the next 30 minutes, he would just circle back around me and carry on the conversation. And I just smiled and and, and finally he said, you know, he says, don't get me wrong. He says, he says I, I, I love what you guys are doing at Bethel. He says, I honor the hell out of you. And I, I thought that was good because I, I, I want to get all the hell out of me that I can. And, and if he could get some of that out of me, I'm, just count me in. I'm good. I don't care who does it, just count me in. And he, he went on and on and said, I just honor the hell out of you. And I, I went and just thanked him and thanked him. And, it was interesting. I didn't carry on any of the conversation. I just responded to, to treat him respectfully, you know. And finally, I think it was the fourth conversation in that half hour. He came, he said, listen, he said, uh, no hard feelings. He said, I really, really love who you guys are in this city. And then I had just heard that he's going in for brain surgery. And I says, is it, is it true you're going in for surgery? He says, yeah. I said, can I pray for you? He said, yeah, that would be good. And here's a guy who hated me 20 minutes earlier. <laughs> Just, I mean, I wish I could show you video of him manifesting, you know. It wasn't for anything, it wasn't for anything wrong, obviously. It was, just, it was just he asked a question and I answered him and he was angry at my answer. And then he let me lay hands on him and pray. 
See, power just forces a decision. It's like all these other issues make no make no sense when somebody's facing life and death because of cancer in the brain. I believe in kindness. I believe in tenderness. I believe, you know, if you're a shy person, it doesn't mean you don't pray. It just means you pray quietly. You know, the person that's loud and energetic, let them pray loudly. You don't have to. God, God's moved by, by you, who you are. It's just the fact we step into the middle of a crisis in between death and life and we stand there in the name of the Lord Jesus wanting to love and to serve people. And it is absolutely impossible to adequately display the love of God without power. It's a little bit off subject, but I, I, uh, I don't know any other way to do this than to, to look for opportunities to pray. And when it when there's breakthrough, when there's the miracle, when the tumor just disappears and the deaf ear opens up and all the stuff happens, you know, we just, we're stunned. We just give God thanks and praise and celebrate his kindness. When there isn't a breakthrough, that's when you get back into the secret place and you cry out to God. God, you've got to do something with me because these people are coming from all over the earth because they're expecting when they come into our house to meet with you and get a miracle. And all they met was me and neither of us are impressed. You've got to do something with me because th they are coming to meet you. And it's a secret place. You get back in before the Lord and you cry out. You say, God, I've run into five people with, with multiple sclerosis this week and not one has been healed. So what do you do? You get before God saying, God, either, either you are shaming me because I don't have the anointing for this or you are summoning me into the secret place to contend until I get a breakthrough. You can take it whatever way you want. I suggest the latter. You keep running into the same stuff. Maybe, just maybe, God's giving you an invitation. Does it hurt enough yet for you to pray out of desperation? Convenient prayers get convenient answers. Prayers that cost me bring breakthrough. So Peter is in this boat and he drops to his knees and he begins to confess his sin and this is repentance. This is the target of every, every evangelist. Every time we minister to the lost is to bring them into a place of repentance. And Jesus did it the weirdest way ever. He caused a businessman to prosper. You watch in the next 10 years the tools that Jesus uses through you to bring people into an intimate place with him, into a place of surrender, into that place of deep, profound repentance. He'll use any tool he wants to, and sometimes he'll just cause blessing to flow. One of the interesting things that we experienced back 20-some years ago was people would be filled with joy, and, and the, the criticism was, you know, they need to repent for their sins. They need... They don't deserve the joy. And that's, that's kind of what grace is, is it's, it's undeserved. <laughs> Law requires, grace enables. It comes free, and it comes to undeserving people. 
And that's the whole thing, is Peter did not earn this blessing of the Father. And yet that blessing so overwhelmed him that he was drawn into a place of confession. One more comment I'll make on that, and then we'll go to the second story. <clears throat> In Hosea 3.5, there's this interesting verse where it talks about the goodness of God being seen so clearly and so profoundly that people fear God because of his goodness. I've heard people say, there's no fear of God in the New Testament, which I just say, you know, read it. My goodness, it's in there. <laughs> Slap yourself, then read it. <clears throat> they say, well, you can't have fear with somebody that you're intimate with. And that person obviously isn't married. <laughs> so that's all I'm going to say about that. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. I love my wife and she scares me. And I think she likes it that way. I just think, between you and me, I think she does. It said, in the last days, people would fear God because of God's goodness. And that word there, fear, is a, is a real interesting term because it actually means to be startled. We've all had it happen where somebody, we didn't hear someone walk into the room and they come behind us and they say, hey, how you doing? We about jump out of our skin and, and just lost 10 years of life right there in that startling moment. You know, they just, they just caught us completely off guard or I was zoning, I was thinking about something else and they came in and completely shocked me. Imagine God sneaking up behind you and displaying such a measure of goodness that it absolutely terrifies you. It startles you, it catches you off guard, but it brings you into a fear of God that draws you close. There's two kinds of fear in scripture. One draws, drives you away, the other endears us to him. And that that endears us to him, can you imagine a goodness of God that endears us to him? This is what Peter just experienced. This is a prophetic picture, if you will, of someone being overwhelmed obviously didn't deserve it, overwhelmed with God's kindness. And it brought him to such a place of absolute surrender that he voluntarily began to confess his sins. I think we've got some surprises coming. I, I am all into the bold confession of faith, the bold preaching of the gospel. I, that's my favorite. You know, my favorite is just that altar call and the preaching of the gospel. I like laying hands on some have them fly back five rows and shake for three hours. That's, that's my favorite. That's my favorite. But if causing somebody to catch a whole bunch of fish is going to bring them into the kingdom, then I'm into a whole bunch of fish. God bless the businessman so that he knows your kindness is beyond what's normal. We've had, for example, in our own community, we, we encourage our folks to adopt businesses in prayer, prayerfully adopt businesses. And I know of one in particular where they stopped by, they're not believers yet, but they stopped, at least they may be now, but they weren't at the time of this story. They would stop by and just find out how the business is doing. They would have some insights for them. They would pray for them. And, and, uh, and one time they're, they're, whoever it was takes the money to the bank, is on their way to the bank. And so they prayed for them first. And by the time they got to the bank, the deposit actually doubled. Just doubled. 
I just, I just think God's in a better mood than we think he is. And I just think if we just, you know, just stick our neck out a little bit, we don't declare what's going to happen. We just invite his goodness to be seen. I, I just think he likes to display his heart as a dad, as a father, more than we might think. The next story I want to talk to you about is in uh, Luke 19. If you'd turn there, please. It's a story that uh, I think it was Banning made uh, mention of Zacchaeus earlier <clears throat> today, and it's it's another fascinating story that just catches me off guard on how God touches people. And he just, he just loves people. You know, you don't have to have it figured out before you enter somebody's life. You don't have to have the word or the insight or the roadmap to how you're going to bring change to somebody's life. It's just, it's just involvement with another human being. It's just expressing care or interest. And here's an interesting story with Jesus and Zacchaeus. Verse 1, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they complained, saying, He has gone to be the guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I, have, I give half my goods to the poor. If I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because you're a son of Abraham. This is such a beautiful story. It's a wonderful story. Here's a, here's a guy who's, who can't see over the crowd. He runs down the road because he, he can see the momentum. He climbs the tree. And Jesus, as the whole crowd is moving with him, looks up and he invites himself over to his house. Well, first of all, if you were to, if we could flash back to that particular day, that particular era, I think the most hated person in the community would be the tax collector. More than the town drunk, more than the thief, more than any of the people we might label. The person that was most despised. And Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, he is the chief tax collector. He's, he's like the mafia guy. He he's just controls all the other thieves that work in the name of government to pilfer and to take from the citizens of his community. And so he's like the most despised guy in the community. And Jesus spots him and invites himself to his house. Zacchaeus, it doesn't even say, I, I can't d discern whether they actually made it to the house or not, or this is on the way. But somewhere in the journey, Zacchaeus says, all right, half of what I have, I'm gonna give to the poor. If I've stolen from people, I'm gonna give return back four times whatever I took from them. Now, where was Jesus' sermon in this story? When did he confront Zacchaeus for his greed? 
When did he confront him for his issues? I believe in it. I think it's an important thing to do, but in this story, he just didn't do it. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Instead, what he did, he actually chose to honor the least honorable in the crowd, and he honored him with his presence. You see, there's not a person there that didn't want Jesus to come to their house. You read through the stories. You remember the ointment being poured over Jesus and the woman washed with her hair? That was in a Pharisee's house. The Pharisees are diametrically opposed to Jesus' life, his ministry, his words, his teaching. They hate him, and yet they wanted Jesus at their house. So it's this odd combination of he's highly favored, we want the famous person at our house, and yet we don't like what he does, and we don't like what he says. Everybody wants him at their house. And Jesus looks at this tax collector who's up in a tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down quickly. We need to go to your house. The simplest act, this wasn't causing a man to prosper like Peter. This instead was giving him personal attention when everybody in the community knew he was the least deserving of everyone in the city. There's something about honor that draws out significance in a person. Jesus honored the most dishonorable. He honored him with his time. He honored him with his personal presence and went to his home. And somehow in that exchange, he voluntarily starts confessing his sin. He voluntarily begins to return money uh, from people that he stole. The whole point was is Zacchaeus ended up walking into repentance because of a gift of honor, because of an act of honor. Sometimes, you know, let's be honest, people know their junk. We know our stuff, we know what's wrong. What they don't know is what's right. They don't know destiny, they don't know purpose. They don't know why they're alive. That's the privilege that you and I have before somebody deserves it to be able to call that sense of destiny into a person's heart. And here Jesus, the one crowd is pressing in all around him. Everybody wants to get just close enough to touch him, maybe hear a few words. Jesus chooses this guy to spend time at his home. And when he does, it brings Zacchaeus into a place of repentance. I had no intention of talking to you about this when I came, uh, not for any reason except it just wasn't in my heart. But I started thinking through the fact that Sacramento is such a city of influence. And I don't like the idea of compromising the gospel. I, I like the bold declaration of truth. But I also am awed by the power of an act of kindness an act of blessing, to bring people into an awareness of who God is and then who they are. And in these two stories, you got a businessman fisherman who gets a huge catch, and you got a tax collector that really doesn't need any more money. What he needs is he needs to find a real reason to wake up in the morning. And he sees favor from the Son of God given to him, and suddenly, he enters into a purpose for a resource that he never knew was available. I believe that Jesus wants to demonstrate himself in us and through us in ways that we've never thought of. 
interesting, unique ways, unique ways to care for people, unique ways to call people into their destiny. Sometimes it's just a brief exchange at the counter at the grocery store. Other times it's, it's more involvement in their life just simply because they're the neighbor and you get to spend time with them. But the whole point is, is, is God has this plan. He's got this idea. He's got this dream. And the dream is of a massive harvest. The dream is of a harvest that's bigger than our containers will hold. He's got this dream. There's two words in the New Testament that represent the will of God. Two that I'm familiar with. One is the will of God that is firm, it is fixed, it is settled. There's nothing you and I can do to change it. Jesus is going to return, period. You can vote yes, you can vote no. It really doesn't matter. He's not taking any advice or instructions from us, period. But there's a second word that describes desires that God has. And they're not fixed. They're not set. It's actually the dreams of God, the desires, the wishes of God. And sometimes those words, that word for the wish or the desire is a word that is used to describe the will of God. And I'd like to suggest to you that when the boats were filled up and sinking, that's what Jesus had in mind, that all of man's containers would not be able to contain the harvest that burned in his heart. And that harvest comes in so many different ways. Sometimes it's just the simplest act of kindness. Sometimes it's taking the moment in the gym to lay hands on a person and rebuking cancer. It could come in any number of ways. The fact is, God has a heart for people. And until I, until I become aware of his heartbeat, I'm going to try to figure out how to touch them. But when you get moved by his heart, suddenly compassion takes over. Suddenly there's an influence outside of us, outside of our gifting, outside of our brilliance. God forbid that any of us can only be used by God where we are gifted. That's the biggest lie. <laughs> My goodness gracious. God doesn't need any of our gifts. It's cool that he gave us some, but he doesn't need any of them. You know, let's, let's be honest. You got Paul and you got Peter. You got the genius in Jewish law. And you've got Peter, the rough fisherman. Which one are you sending to the Gentiles? Peter. Which one are you sending to the rabbis, to the Jews? Paul. What did God do? He says, well, I'm going to give them opposite assignments because <laughs> it'll teach them to pray. How I many of you know, you just pray better when you don't know what you're doing. Most revivals end when people figure it out. We, we tend to fight for control. And as soon as we get it figured out, we stop being like children. It's no longer an adventure. It's now the routine. It's the formula. And it's the presence of God doing what he wants to do among a group of people that are just so hungry. They'll live with risk. Take the risks that are needed. But give him the place to move. I love what God's doing in this city. I'm thrilled with being in this building. I've been in this room many, many times. Wept and worshipped with so many other pastors and leaders and with this church family. It's an incredible honor to be back and now to be here with the Jesus Culture family. What a privilege. But I tell you what, the Lord is raising up 
this group of people that just are fearless. Just, just fearless. You may not stand on a street corner, but you're not intimidated by a demon. For many of you, your breakthrough will begin the day you stop being impressed with the size of your problem. Jesus only did what he saw the Father do. He did not live in reaction to the devil. He didn't live in reaction to the devil. got the same response out of that microphone. <laughs> he didn't live in reaction to the devil. He just <laughs> It's too late. You missed your chance. I'm sorry. <laughs> he didn't live in reaction to darkness. He, 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 didn't, he didn't allow the devil's plans, strategies, accomplishments be that which gave him direction on something to do. If we live in reaction to the devil, then the devil has a role in setting our agenda. And he is not worthy of influencing my agenda at all. He's not, he's not worthy of influencing my thoughts, my emotional condition, my ambition, my plans, my strategies. None of it is to be inspired or directed or lived in reaction to what the devil has done or threats and threatens to do. Jesus instead kept an eye on the Father, and he only, he only did what he saw his Father do. That, for that reason, he was always living in response to something. He was always bringing life, not just contradicting something. Some people would have no sermon if they couldn't contradict something. If they couldn't fix something that was wrong somewhere, they'd have nothing to say. Yes, amen, Bill. That's a good point. Amen. <clears throat> it's the life-giving presence and power of Jesus. It's the gospel that changes the life. And it's the gospel through your lips and through mine. The best that we understand it, we share it simply, calmly, boldly, and look for God to do what only God can do. I believe he's going to sprinkle... I believe he's going to sprinkle us as a people even, even deeper into the world system. Just don't forget the corporate gathering. You know, our idea, Jesus says you're the salt of the earth. Our idea of being the salt of the earth is unscrewing the salt shaker, pour the entire pile of salt in the corner of the meal so that we can hang out together. Because God forbid we do business with any non-believers. When he said, I want you to be sprinkled evenly over the entire meal. That way you'll give influence and you'll enhance what I have already put into the meal. In other words, you and I don't carry everything. We enhance what's there. We add flavor. That's the whole issue of salt. Salt adds flavor. Well, salt preserved meat, Bill. Yeah, I know. It's just not what Jesus said. He said if salt loses its flavor. He's talking about flavor. 
It's not complicated. You and me bring sprinkled over our cities is to enhance the flavor that God has written into the systems of the world, to enhance what they've already been given by God. Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus to give everything away. Why? He didn't need to. The rich young ruler needed to. We do the one size fits all and try to get the same response out of every person. Jesus raised Zacchaeus up to be a financial leader. He just didn't want him to do it wrong. Mary, Martha, Lazarus were prosperous people. He didn't have them change either. They didn't need to. <laughs> it's bringing people. See, the farther you go with God, the less you can take with you. So I believe Jesus is taking this body of believers as he is all over the nation. And he's giving us courage just to be, to be carriers of presence, to be lovers of Jesus, to not get lost in religious rhetoric, but just to be lovers of God who just look for breakthroughs and look for impossibilities. You've not had a good day unless you've seen an impossibility bend its knee to the name Jesus through your lips. That's what qualifies as a good day. We were born for this. We were born for this. Written into your spiritual DNA is an appetite for the impossible. You can't take 10 brand new believers, put them in a room for a year, and have any one of them come out with their Bible saying God doesn't heal anymore. Every one of them come out of that room after a year of studying their Bible, coming out going, where are the sick? Where are the dead? We need to get busy. Because it's, it's in our DNA, it's in, it's in our appetite. Not for show, not for identity, but because it's vital that who he is becomes manifest. Do you know, every time there is a miracle of healing, the resurrection of Jesus has been affirmed. A primary reason, the love of God and the resurrection of Jesus is affirmed in every miracle. Paul says, we're the most foolish of all if there's no resurrection from the dead. Miracles testify he is alive. Testify he is raised from the dead. Peter was so, so profoundly impacted by the Spirit of God who rested upon him that his shadow healed the sick. Your shadow will always release whatever overshadows you. It's giving place to the person of the Holy Spirit that enables us to change the atmosphere of every room we walk into. It's not about you, it's not about me. But it is about this Holy Spirit, God on earth, that would like to impact the people that you and I run into on a daily basis. There's some Peters that are struggling in business and he'd like to bring dramatic increase. There are thieves, people that are hated by their cities that need to find out who they are. There's people like this sprinkled all through our lives. And if we can make sure we don't make it about us, but actually make it about him.
sharing his love, taking opportunity to demonstrate his power. He's the powerful one. All I do is open up an opportunity for the extravagant one to come and do what only he can do. But uh, that moment has to be captured. So let me pray over you for a moment. Father, I ask for a release of the Holy Spirit and power right now over every single individual. Just come. Come in power. Let there be a fresh, fresh baptism a fresh baptism of the power of God, a fresh baptism in the Holy Spirit, a baptism that makes us contagious. Lord, I ask that you would increase this mantle of breakthrough upon us as individuals and a church family. A mantle of breakthrough. God, I'm asking that you would mark individuals in this room so profoundly with a spirit of breakthrough that you wake them in the night with divine encounters, that you'd open up our hearts to hunger for breakthrough unlike any previous season of our life. We're not asking to be entertained by you. We just say, Father God, please put us on like a glove and do what only you can do. Glorify the name Jesus through a surrendered group of people. I pray this in the wonderful, wonderful name of Jesus. Now I want you to pray something with me here just for a moment. Something that I've been praying for probably the most frequent prayer of mine in the last five years or so has been for the spirit of breakthrough that is identified in the Old Testament in David's life, the spirit of breakthrough. I'm going to ask you to put a hand on the shoulder of somebody next to you. And I want you to just pray that the spirit of breakthrough would come upon them. Just pray that over them. Pray it out loud. Pray it aggressively. Pray it with great faith. Pray it in part as a decree. Spirit of God, come. A spirit of breakthrough over their lives. The greatest impossibilities of their lives would yield in this next season would yield in this next season. The greatest impossibilities would yield in this next season. Hopeless situations would turn in this next season. The most impossible situations known in this room would turn in this next season. Let a spirit of breakthrough come upon let there be burning revivalists that would be released. Business people with defined uh, definition and purpose, clearer than any before, with great demonstrations of love and of power, purity and power. God, I pray that for every person, that neighborhoods would be impacted like wildfire spreading from one house to the next as the burning heart of God becomes manifest in communities. We pray this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen.
This has been the Jesus Culture Sacramento podcast. For more information about the church, visit JesusCulture.com.